Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Politicana. Today we are on episode 113. My name is Tyler. Of course, as always, I am with Pratik and Nick. And today we're going to be kicking it off with Pratik talking about Biden. So what's going on in the White House? So um, in terms of the White House, White House counsel says visitor logs for Biden Delaware home do not exist. White House counsel said on Sunday that since becoming president, Biden has not maintained records of those who have visited his residence. White House spokesperson Ian Sam said to the Associated Press, There are no visitor logs kept of people who came to President Joe Biden's Delaware home, the location where two of the three batches of classified documents were found in January. This is a criticism that Trump faced while holding office himself. The Obama administration was the first to release White House visitor logs, although it did not do so until Barack Obama had been president for nine months in office. And there were several exceptions to that too. The Trump administration then discontinued the practice before President Biden reinstated it, citing that they wished to provide full transparency. House Oversight and Accountability Committee Chairman Representative James Comer, Republican of Kentucky, has requested that the White House provide a log of all visitors to Mr. Biden's Wilmington home since the beginning of his presidency. It is troubling that classified documents have been improperly stored at the home of President Joe Biden for at least six years, raising questions about who, have, who may have reviewed or had access to classified information, Comer wrote. President Biden's mishandling of classified materials raises the issue of whether he has jeopardized or national security, Comer said in a letter to White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain. Without a list of individuals who have visited his residence, the American people will never know who had access to these highly sensitive documents. The committee demands transparency into whether any individuals with foreign connections to the Biden family gained access to President Biden's residence and the classified documents that he has mishandled for years. Many Republicans are asking whether Hunter Biden had access to these classified documents as well. With the current administration's DOJ raiding former President Trump's home in Mar-a-Lago for supposedly holding documents, which itself is unprecedented, the question is how far will the DOJ go in investigating the current president of the United States? Nick and Tyler, what are your thoughts? I just have to say, for the Hunter Biden outrage, I mean, that's basically like a layup for any Republican right now in Congress. Like, if anything happens with Biden, they're like, oh, I, I bet Hunter was involved with this. How do we put it on Hunter and say the entire family is corrupt? Like, come on. come on. I know Hunter is like a screw-up in so many ways, but, you know, cut the guy some slack here, all right? Um, in terms of keeping visitor logs, I don't know why you would keep visitor logs of your private residence. It doesn't really make sense. Um, in terms of the classified documents, again, as we discussed last episode, never should have had them, doesn't excuse his behavior, but I don't know, this seems like sort of an outsized and oversized reaction from the Republicans in the House to any sort of lack of visitor logs. I'm actually surprised they haven't said anything about looking into the, like, the headline should be, what were the classified documents, not who went to Joe Biden's garage? That seems immaterial to me. Tyler? Well, I think it's irrelevant to them because, like you said, all they're trying to do is pin it against the Democrats because, um, as you had alluded to, Republicans in the U.S. House had actually launched an investigation on Friday into the Justice Department's handling of improperly stored documents by Joe Biden and questioned whether his son Hunter had any access. And as long as, you know, they don't ha they don't need the concrete evidence to push that narrative. And with that narrative, I think it's going to help them because up until this point, there hasn't been any real way apart from the laptop to link in Hunter Biden and attach him to Joe Biden. He's somewhat clean. The people, obviously, he's his son, but we didn't know how close they were, what their dealings professionally actually were. But this 
causes some doubt in that case. And I, I think that's going to actually help Republicans, whether or not there's documents or classified documents that were important, it's irrelevant. And I don't think they were super relevant because I also think something would have leaked or come out at this point. I'm going to the visitor logs. I don't think it's super important. It seems like a recent precedent. It's not something I necessarily would expect. But if we want that to be something, we should put it in law that the president moving forward needs to have visitor logs in his home, especially if he's using that as a place to conduct business, which I'm sure Biden has done so. So maybe that is a good idea. So obviously my issue with this is that you're holding Biden to another standard as compared to what you hold Trump at. The storyline, the way the news spins the storyline, the way you talk about the conversation, it all varies based on what, what president you're talking about. If you talk about Trump and this stuff happened where Trump had some documents that were in his garage, let's say in Mar-a-Lago, you're willing to go raid it. Whether or not he's a has-been president and is no longer serving in office, it's still important enough for you to go raid his home. While with Biden... Obviously, the guy is the cream of the crop guy. He's the future of the Democratic Party. We all love him because, you know, he's Uncle Joe. And it's important because with Joe Biden, obviously, he can do no wrong and say no wrong. And it, when he messes up, it happens by accident. When Trump messes up, he did it intentionally. There is nothing, you know, no way you can doubt that or contradict that. And there's no way you can even say that, whoa, what Trump did happened by accident. Because automatically the news is going to be like, no, what Trump did was on purpose. He knew what he was doing. I think in this situation too, it, because if you even read this story, the way they talk about it, the first stuff is like, whoa, what did Trump do? Did Trump have house logs? Man, why are they saying Biden should have house logs for his house? They didn't expect it with Trump. But that's the thing here. Everything that they do in these storylines, they like Barack Obama established White House logs. The original Hill story talked about how this was a norm that was originally set. And it was set for decades. But literally, it, the norm only existed whenever Barack Obama became president. And there'd only been two presidents before Joe Biden, where Barack Obama was president. So I just think that's important. I just love how the news spins it the way. And the problem is, is that all of us are educated people. We all know like, oh, yeah, the news does stuff like that. We all know that they're a little bit more biased towards Democrats. And then if you listen to Fox News, they're a little bit more biased towards Republicans. But the fact is that most of these people that read these headline stories are apolitical people. They're going to be voting in the next election. And you know who the next two options are going to be. It's either going to be Trump and DeSantis on the Republican side. And you know there's no one else is going to replace Joe Biden. He's the future president and, every, president and everything the party will ever do in the next eight years is Joe Biden. So I think that's important. Is that the way we look at this stuff and the way it's framed is very important, more so than the actual story. I agree with Nick that, you know, it's not really a, you wouldn't have um, logs for your personal residence. That generally has never been the precedent. You do have logs for the White House, but even that wasn't precedent or norm. They like to talk about it in the story, but generally speaking, before Barack Obama, you never had White House visitor logs. This is a recent new thing. And then it shut down whenever COVID started where you weren't allowed to visit the White House. So that led to, oh, Trump didn't even, he abolished the White House visitor records. And then Biden brought it back up because he was advocating for full transparency. All of that stuff is all like political spinning of stories. And I just think that's important because in this storyline, I don't really think it's a big deal, but it is questionable why he had records, why he had like, you know, these confidential um, documents within his home. But 
you should question that. But obviously, when it deals with political stories, the news spins it in a certain way. So you automatically feel that, oh, Biden messed up. He didn't know. He just forgot that he had documents. He's an old guy. But when it's Trump, it's just a different storyline. Tyler, what's your thoughts? I, the whole thing about logging, it's like, are we really even going to trust the fact that if they met with someone that they shouldn't be meeting with, that they would log that, whether it's at the home or in the White House? I mean, this isn't like some verified certification that, oh, only these people have ever been on the premises. Like, no, I mean, it's just not for me. It's not that big of a deal. Um, but I would disagree with you, Pratik, where I, I, I don't think it's that big of a deal. But part of it's you're right, where it's like. We just we just say Joe Biden's incompetent anytime anything goes wrong. And with Trump, there's malice. And I think that is a good point because that is how it's framed more often than not. When in reality, they're both probably just idiots. So, <laughs> Nick, you want to have your final two cents? No, Pratik. You know, I, I've already given you my one cent. I've given you <laughs> actually I've given you five so far. All right. I think, you know, the visitor logs. OK, it's an it's an interesting idea, right? How much do you end up recording? How much do you end up writing down? You know, if you are taking a meeting while you're walking somewhere in the hallway, you know, do you record that as some official visitor meeting? If you're walking to the hill or being chauffeured over there and some member says something to you on your walk over, like, are you going to record that as an official meeting that you held? Like, no, absolutely not. You know, at the same time, if you're having like a back channel conversation, let's say this was, you know, back in time during the Cuban Missile Crisis and the sitting U.S. president had a back channel to sort of calm things down. Would you really be putting on the White House schedule like, oh, yeah, at like 3 p.m., we had a call with the head of the Soviet yeah. Union and talked about, you know, the impending nuclear war? No, you wouldn't do that. So, I mean, like you were saying, Tyler, I think a lot of it is just up to discretion. I think it's a good practice in general. And to your earlier point, if you are routinely meeting people at your private residence, I think then it does become I think it would be in the best interest of the administration if transparency is your thing to really then keep that log and say, here's who I met with. And of course, people are going to have issues trusting that. But I think as long as it just becomes common practice, I think that's something I would actually like to see. Because I don't know, I, I like actually knowing who is lobbying who when they're in office. That's something I appreciate about, you know, all the heads of the executive agencies. They keep these logs and they publish the visitor logs and who they end up meeting with. It's why, for example, when Trump was in office and he put Scott Pruitt in charge of the EPA, Pruitt met with none of the environmental groups and he only met with industry who basically wanted less environmental regulation and that showed up in the books so then people could say hey you're not talking with all these other stakeholders you're only focused on one narrow industry please meet with other people and so but that's could, why i think logbooks yeah. are important but for the president like you were saying if something's like really sensitive i just don't trust that they would really put it in there maybe that's a bad take but i, I just don't think they would but, but, I, but even then it's like let's say you as, as a president who's only meeting with one side of the aisle, someone criticizes me, I could say, well, I meet with them, just not at XYZ, not at the White House, not at my, my home. Right. And that would be a good excuse. But I, I get where you're coming from. And I agree. It sounds good in theory. Um, we'll, we'll just see how it plays out. Pratik, any final thoughts? Are we moving on Let's to the great on. secession of our generation here in Oregon? Pratik. <laughs> so Oregon State Senator Fowles Bill to let more than half of the state secede and join Idaho. So Oregon Senator Dennis Linthicum is moving forward with this proposed plan to hand 65% of the state to Idaho. As part of the Greater Idaho Bill, 11 heavily Republican counties in eastern Oregon would secede from the Beaver State and join its red neighbor. 
the original 11 counties officially voted in favor of becoming members of the of the gem state late last year four more including wallowa are considering jumping in bill which is being called the greater idaho bill states that the voting patterns of eastern oregon have for many decades resembled the voting patterns of idaho but not of oregon indicating a desire for a different style of governance it states that Eastern Oregonians have begun to see the Oregon government as a threat to their livelihoods, liberties, and values of their communities, as the preference of the voters of Northwestern Oregon appear at odds with the livelihoods and values of Eastern Oregon communities. According to the Greater Idaho Movement, this proposal is different from creating a new state because it does not affect the balance of power in the U.S. Senate. This means that it's more likely to be, be approved by the Oregon legislature. The movement's website states that Oregon will continue to violate more and more American values and American freedoms because Northwestern Oregon has 79% of Oregon's population and voters. Eastern Oregon is culturally, politically, economically much more similar to Idaho than it is to Western Oregon, said Matt McCaw, an advocate for the bill in the Daily Mail. Our movement is about self-determination and matching people to the government that they want, and that matches their values in Oregon. We've had this urban-rural divide for a very long time. With Northwestern Oregon being much more liberal and left-leaning than their Eastern Oregon counterparts, there has been much of a divide where the Eastern parts of Oregon feel much more connected to the cultural and political values of their Eastern neighbor counterparts in Idaho. So, Nick and Tyler, what are your thoughts on the Greater Idaho Movement and the members of the Oregon state that want to secede from Oregon to become members of Idaho, particularly the eastern part of Oregon? Actually, I think they're incredibly brave. I think this is a new frontier, and I commend them for standing up to the tyranny of, you know, this this liberal elite in these Oregonian cities, you know, lording over them, bossing them around, telling them how they can live their lives out in Eastern Oregon. I think it's sick. I think it's cruel. And I think it's about time that someone stood up to those people and finally joined a state that everyone's wanted to move to since the time they were born, Idaho, the great state of Idaho. Tyler? Look, I don't know, I don't know how to respond to that. That was brilliant. For me, the biggest point of contention in any of these situations is always going to be the district districting and the gerrymandering. And how is that affected by this? Because ultimately, what else actually matters? If they draw a new la line around Idaho and Oregon, no one's really going to care unless it affects politics, which I they say they in the article, it said they it's not. I mean, I can't imagine that's the case. I can't imagine something changes when they're redistricting these maps. With all of that said, I am personally for you know, people's right to choose that. If you're living in a state you don't want to be part of and everyone there doesn't want to be part of that state, I don't see how it makes much sense to force them to live there, to stay there. Are we just done moving any borders? The states we have are finite. We're not drawing new lines anymore as things change and populations and demographics and all cultures change. I'm all for that. At the same time, we got to take into account, for instance, in Connecticut, it's only the more populated areas that pay for everything in the other part of the state. So it's like, at what point do they want to be part of that, get the tax money from these big cities that are bringing income or saying, screw you, I'm going to back off. The fact that they're willing to say, screw you, I'm not going to participate means either they're comfortable maybe taking a pay hit potentially, or they see a bigger benefit to joining Idaho. So I'm not sure which one's the case. So I think it's interesting because as, as Tyler said, I kind of agree a little bit. 
but I kind of disagree too. So let me explain what my logic is. So obviously, I mean, in terms of like the whole policy narrative itself, it's interesting because obviously whenever you deal with a certain state like that, places like Portland are going to control the entire state demographics of everything that happens politically in that state. Whether or not you agree or disagree with what's what how your state does things, the fact is that there all are always divides within each state. And I think it's interesting because in Oregon, like if you look at the eastern part of Oregon, eastern part of Oregon is very conservative. Their values are very different from Western Oregon, where Western Oregon is much more liberal. It's more like the Californian style, San Francisco style of government. That's what they believe. That's what their values are. And they're just more liberally oriented. While conservative Oregon is not that. The conservative side, the eastern part of Oregon, is more like Idaho, which that is interesting because in generally speaking, you've never seen states want to secede from their state. But there has, we, we're not people from Oregon, so we really don't know how the people of Oregon feel about this. Maybe there is a big demand. Maybe the people of Eastern Oregon really feel more in solidarity with people from Idaho as opposed to people from Western Oregon. And Western Oregon literally controls what happens politically in that state because that's where 69 to 70% of the population lives. So it is interesting, taxpayer base wise, it really wouldn't change much because 69 to 70% of the Oregon population is in Western Oregon. The only thing that would change is just that Oregon's size would become smaller as opposed to Idaho. You might have a little bit less tax revenue, but it wouldn't change all that much of anything except for Idaho, Idaho would become a bigger state. So it's interesting. I don't really have a strong opinion. Generally speaking, my issue with any state seceding is that you are a member of that state. So if the state wants to do something, you should jump on board because you are living as a resident in that state. But if you don't like the state, you don't like the values of the state, you are opposed to the culture of the state, then you can leave the state and move to a different state. That's usually my logic in these issues. Whether it's political issues within the state that lead you to do that, it doesn't matter. In the end of the day, when you're a member of that state, whatever that state legislature decides, you have to run, run with it because you decided to become a member of that state. You got 49 other options and you decided that state for X, Y, Z different reasons. So I just think that's important. Now we can talk about the socioeconomics and all that other stuff and all that lingo behind it. But my point is that I'm kind of in limbo here because I get it. If you are a member of Eastern Oregon and you feel more attached to what Idaho is doing more than what Oregon is doing because the western part of Oregon controls the narrative of Oregon, I get why Eastern Oregon people would want to secede. But I also understand that as the state of Oregon, it wouldn't want members of their state and wouldn't want parts of their state to just disappear into another state because it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not a good look for that state altogether. So I get both sides. Nick, what's your thoughts on this? I mean, if they share a border, like seriously, why not just move? If you love Idaho that much, just move there, okay? I get that you probably have ties to some sort of family history. And weirdly enough, like part of that would be, you know, your identity as someone living in Oregon, okay? And also, I'm just curious, what would happen to the people living in the towns who wouldn't want to join the greater state of Idaho? Like if, if you're already living there in those towns that want to join up and they're going to redraw the map totally, what do you... Are you now forced out of your home if you don't want to live out of Ida in Idaho? Like what? It's like 
you're gonna piss off one group of people no matter what here i just don't know what the best way forward is i mean i'm sympathetic to the idea that tyler raised around you know shouldn't if it if a town altogether is bordering another state and they go wow like we actually really identify a lot more with this other state we would like to join that state i get that in principle i just i don't know i i think this would be way too messy i don't think it's ever gonna happen number one but if it were to happen i don't i really don't know it's just way too weird i feel like you know if i was some some resident living in a border town and i didn't mind the border town and it was fine um and then all of a sudden you know i didn't like the people in my local government but you know what i i liked living out there in rural america enjoying my time liking my clean air my clean water the natural surroundings like i don't know i would just be a little pissed off if someone decided like oh i don't agree with the legislature out in the capital therefore we're gonna secede and you person who doesn't agree with me and didn't vote for me in the town i'm gonna decide for you what state you live in now i don't know it's it's just like how to what level do you go down in terms of self-determination do you go all the way down to the individual level do you stop at the county level do you stop at the town level like at what level do you decide yes this is the right level for us to join with this other you know state i i'm just not sure i just think personally for a lot of these people that are really driving this small movement forward just go live in idaho I really don't think it would be that difficult for them. I'm actually surprised. Well, well, Nick, you, you, that, you find you find that level, and then you tell the people in Israel and Palestine what the answer is, because it's a very similar situation. It's the same. How argument. is this similar? Oh, my, Tyler. There, no, <laughs> they literally had accusations of genocide, politics. war, uh, religion, and politics. Look, all I'm saying is, is you have a majority this is just people. Urban what? versus rural divide. But what this Tyler, is not what Tyler, Israeli majority, Palestinian. But what Tyler oh, is saying has some merit. Then to I'll it continue. Because in all issues where there is like a lost state, let's say somewhere like Kashmir between India and Pakistan, which led to our years sure. of conflict, it's the same kind of thing. The issue is, is in the end of the day, I'm surprised that you as a Democrat are saying this because Democrats are the ones that argue about displacement and feeling sad about people being displaced from yeah. their homes and being forced to live somewhere else because they've been in the same home for years. Yeah, and but whenever, you're using ethno... Look, look, but look, I'm a Republican, yeah. okay? In the end of the day... Ethno-religious conflicts to justify a bunch of I'm peanut not, farmers I'm moving not, states. Not, like, I'm it not, doesn't line I'm up. I'm not justifying anything. It's not the I'm same level. There's, but... different, there's different levels to all this stuff. But in the end of the day, just taking it all back, in terms of displacement, the argument is is that for you as a Democrat, Democrats make this argument all the time. E easy example is things like abortion. Put me in a whenever, box, whenever an abortion, whenever the abortion policy took place, whenever certain states decided that they didn't want to allow abortion, the question was that oh, well then you're gonna have to force people to go from one state to another state to have an abortion and the cost behind it, et cetera, et cetera. Same thing exists with Republican policies like gentrification. Whenever you're building an area and let's say there is like an ugly looking building in the area and you're trying to make that area fancier so you're attracting more higher level of income people to come in. So you're building all around this house that's there that's ugly looking. Then the issue is, is that you can you buy the house from eminent domain as the government or and in that case, you're going to displace the people that are there to make them move elsewhere. Democrats generally, especially in places like Washington, are very heavily against this concept. 
because even though you're going to get much more heavy incomes coming in, even if though the economy is going to become much better, you're going to displace those people that had been living in their homes for generations because they've been living in those homes. Now, if it's in that situation where Eastern Oregon wants to become a part of Idaho, if you're saying that the people of Eastern Oregon should just move to Idaho, technically you're saying that you should just, you know, move from your house, whatever, whatever values, traditions, all that stuff, whatever house, you know, all the belongings, memories that you have with that place where you live, you should just leave to go to Idaho because you're not needed anymore in, in Oregon because you don't yeah, believe in the solidarity. If you hate the Oregonian exactly. government, vote, I get it. vote with your feet and leave. I get it. But or vote with your representatives that, who try to change the state line. No, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Look, if they legitimately do this, if this goes through, look, power to them. I just think it's stupid. I don't know. <laughs> Almost all of the seceding topics we cover on the show have to do with like leaving America, like Florida or Texas. They're like, we just want out <laughs> of America. But the, the redrawing of lines within America doesn't seem nearly as a significant issue to me. Yeah, because it I doesn't guess. have to go through Congress. Yeah, but it's yeah. also it's just you're you're part of the same nation. You're just changing, you know, the state line. I just don't know. What, yeah. I, I, do you, do you see those state lines as just cemented in time forever and they don't change? Like, what causes them to change? Because let's say a vast majority of the citizens there don't want to be part of Oregon. Why do we keep them there? I guess what like what what do we benefit from doing that? And if you were no, to draw fair. the if line, if it's an arbitrary line, it's an arbitrary yeah. line. And if you were to, just I mean, there's state laws the line, and stuff, so it matters. No like somewhat. And if you were to just redraw the line, you'd solve the whole problem. Because then you I, just, I would be yeah. really curious about the mechanics of it in terms of... So if, I assume this would have to get passed by the Oregon House as well, not just the Senate. And so not just the state Senate. And so if the state House decides, which is heavily made up of people oh, living in the urban part of the right. state, it's like... Why would they ever agree to that? But that's or maybe they're narrative, saved, though, We're right? done. Get out. We don't want these guys. They keep yelling stuff in the House and Senate. We don't want to talk about this. Just get out. We don't need I, you. I don't know. Anymore. I guess my they're perspective probably not is just do like that, urban but. and rural communities need each other in a lot of ways. And yeah, I just, I, agree. I don't know. It, to me, but that, I guess that all right, fits stupid is not though. the best way of doing it. But I just think because I, I get the argument that you guys said where you were, Tyler, you were saying like, oh, there are certain parts, for example, the argument gets brought up a lot um, where like, oh, blue states contribute more funding and red states receive more government funding than they contribute. So blue states are subsidizing red states and therefore, you know, shouldn't cities and blue states, you know, if anything, shouldn't they be the ones who are like, hey, we're producing more value than we're getting from the rest of you. We should withdraw from the system. But I don't know. They're just so interconnected that I, I just fundamentally wouldn't agree with it. For example, if New York City decided to secede from New York State and be its own thing, like, okay, New York City relies on aquifers and drinking water from upstate New York. It relies on all these services that come from other parts of the state. And so the city itself, you know, it, I, I don't know. It's like the rural parts of New York, maybe, you know, maybe if you have like this very romantic view of, you know, rugged... <laughs> Uh, individualism or whatever <laughs> yeah critique water is the problem okay <laughs> now it all comes back maybe that's, that's what's awesome. at play here maybe it's over water rights but in any case i i think i've said enough on this in terms of rambling but look if they go through with this and it works out i think it would be funny power to them but i just don't think it would actually be good for either state and i think it would just upset more people that, that's a fair point 
That's a fair point. And look, I, I would honestly love to talk to someone from that place. Like, what are you guys thinking on the ground? Like, is this something you're serious about? Or is it one of those things that politicians just do and you're like, ah, whatever. Who cares? So, uh, but hey, let, let's move on to our next topic here, to the great state of Wyoming and all those progressive things they've got going on over there. Oh, so and I before know- we do that, I just want to say one thing. It's not like this is just a small part of Oregon that would secede. Uh, apparently, it's sixty-five percent of the state's landmass. <laughs> like, this is not like <laughs> that's what's crazy. Town. It's all the people. No, but see, Nick, that's part of their narrative. Is like, why is that small part of Oregon where there's a lot of people that live there? But why is that small part of Oregon dictating what sixty-five percent of the other Oregon should do, what they should believe, and how they should run? Because people don't live in the other landmass. Money mass. and yeah, population size. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, Tyler. All right, take us to a bastion of the future. Well, well, look. We know how important electronic vehicle vehicles are. I mean, Nick, you're the you're the environmental person here. Why am I introducing? Well, you keep you? saying electronic vehicles it's instead electric, of electric vehicles. Electric. So sure, I can. I can I'm driving. <laughs> I'm driving a Hot Wheels car. It's electric. No, electronic. No, I'm just kidding. Um. Anyways, in Wyoming, what are they doing with electric vehicles? What's going on? All right. So in Wyoming, they want to. <laughs> There have been some stories about how they want to phase out the sale of EVs by 2035 to ensure the stability of the oil and gas industry. Now, we've heard this a lot from states like California, New York, and others where they say they want to phase out um, the sale of fossil fuels. However, in Wyoming, they're saying we want the opposite. Two can play that game. So, Senators Jim Anderson, Brian Boner, Ed Cooper... Dan Dockstaden, these are real people. Representatives Donald Buckert Jr. and Bill Henderson sponsored the bill SJ4. Now, in the legislation, it claims that the oil and gas production in the state has one of the been one of the state's proud and valued industries, creating countless jobs, which, by the way, you can count, but contributing revenues to the state of Wyoming throughout the nation's history. No one would dispute that. The writers of the bill are worried about the lack of EV charging infrastructure, which would make the widespread use of electric vehicles impractical for the state. And it praises gas-powered vehicles for allowing the state's industries and businesses to flourish, and they criticize the use of batteries in electric vehicles due to the critical minerals contained within them. The minerals in the batteries are, quote, not easily recyclable or disposable, end quote, and claimed that the authors of the bill claim that municipal landfills in the state will be required to develop safe and responsible disposing disposable solutions for the minerals. Oh, wow. Geez. Just like lead acid batteries for regular cars. Anyway, the bill then praises the oil and gas industry, stating the proliferation of electric vehicles at the expense of gas-powered vehicles will have deleterious effects on Wyoming's communities. It will be detrimental to Wyoming's economy and the ability for the country to efficiently engage in commerce. How many people live in Wyoming? It's like a half a million people. Okay, like this this is not, I, I don't know. Pati- yeah, yeah. Tyler, before I get on my soapbox, what do you guys think? How does this sound to you? I mean, doesn't this sound like fair play since New York and California are doing things on the opposite side? Why shouldn't a state with a lot of fossil fuel industry vote to keep fossil fuel powered cars? Because you're only voting in your state. It doesn't mean every other state's not going to adopt electric vehicles and not use your gas and oil anymore. I mean, look, you're known for you for this industry People are lobbying for it. There are lots of money coming in for it. But this is just stupid. This, the population size isn't that big. So you're only limiting a small number of people. You're not going to stop all these other different places from adopting these vehicles. In California, aren't they mandating it by like 2030? Every vehicle has to be, you know, an uh, EV. Is that correct? Yeah. Something like that. It's either Anyways. EV, partial EV, or 
I don't know if they're going to include any sort of hydrogen-powered solution, but yeah, it's essentially trying to phase out um, oil-powered vehicles. Yeah, this is a giant virtue signal. For they're like, we don't have the infrastructure. Well, it's like, what are you going to do over the next 12 years? You can't even develop some infrastructure. And I get they don't want to work against, against themselves. I understand people are always looking out for their self-interest. This is just so laughable and meaningless to the rest of the country it, to me i find it very funny but it's not in their self-interest yeah. and let me just say two things before critique okay. one oil is a global commodity that is very easily transported and sold to other markets you are not harming the industry in your state in any way by precluding the sale of evs i i just don't or you know, doing anything to harm the sale of more fossil fuel powered cars. You know, those industries are just going to sell to other people who want the oil. I don't think it's going to crater the industry there. That's number one. Number two, Wyoming produces a lot of coal power, okay? What do EVs run on? Electricity. What can you ele generate electricity from? Coal. If anything, it's just very strange to me that this state would say, look, we, we mine a lot of this fossil fuel, coal, and you know what? We could use it for the electric vehicles, but we don't want to. We care more about the oil part of the fossil fuel equation, which, again, like I said, really wouldn't be hurt that badly because the population in the state is so freaking low. It wouldn't matter that much. Most of the exports are not. They're going to other states. They're going to other places. They're not staying within the state. I don't know. Pratik, what are your thoughts? So obviously, I'm going to keep my same consistent stance that I've had before. The way I look at this is that in California, whenever they phased out oil and gas powered cars by 2035, I was heavily against it. And the reason I'm heavily against it is because some of the same claims that they're making, like they're worried about the lack of EV charging infrastructure. They're worried about all the jobs that will be lost. They're worried about what that short term transition will be from what we you know whenever you move away from oil and gas to electric vehicles or just the fact that a majority of our cars still on the road in many of these places like Wyoming are all still oil and gas powered cars. And not everyone can afford a Tesla and all the other electric vehicle options are not practical because you don't have charging stations everywhere. Now, it's the same argument that I made. Now, how I'm going to adjust, adjust it to Wyoming is that the same way you shouldn't phase out the sales of oil and gas powered cars, you shouldn't do the same thing with electric vehicles. They're two different industries. For me as a capitalist, what I would argue is that in the end of the day, you want as many options available to the public as, as you can. You could potentially grow the EV industry and the EV industry will grow and the way you do that is by making more electric char char car charging stations. The way you'd solve that problem is by placing them in gas stations and other convenience stores where people generally charge or power their cars oil powered cars and then you just create more options available for people and then people can decide whether they want an electric car a hybrid car or a gas powered car. The reason I don't like this bill is just because I just think this kind of like, why are you phasing out the sales of EVs? But that's the same reason why I think it's authoritarian for California and New York to phase out the sale of oil and gas powered cars. You're not in that area where you can just be like, yeah, no more oil and gas powered cars. We know that in the, by 2035, we're only going to have electric vehicles. We really don't know. We don't know the long-term sustainability of electric vehicles. We know Teslas are really good. Most of the Republican people that I know that are buying electric vehicles are buying Teslas. Actually, all Tesla owners that I know are Republican. Weird analogy. I just think that it's important because you always we always try to make all this stuff a political story. But in the end of the day, 
it's not political. You're not, you haven't seen the end of the EVs and you haven't seen the beginning. This is a brand new industry. With oil and gas, you know about the pros and cons, but you've been, you've had oil powered cars since the 1920s. So you have a, such a long span of things. And even before that, whenever Henry Ford was around, I just think that you're moving towards that state, you're moving towards a different alternative. And maybe that alternative may be better. But don't eliminate another alternative because you're arguing that the alternative that you're removing is going to somehow eliminate the other one. In the end of the day, you need options. Don't be authoritarian and let people decide whether they want to drive electric, hybrid, or oil and gas-powered cars. That's all I'm saying. Good points, Pratik. Before we get to Tyler on this, I want to say one more thing, which is that these legislators are just stupid. Okay, Wyoming. Where are the rare earth minerals that are going to be used to make the, the, the EVs in the United States? Where are they in this country that we desperately want to promote domestic production of? They are in the state of Wyoming. Why are they opposed to this? It would Lobbying. be good for their economy and good to jobs. I, I, go ahead, Tyler. I was just going to say before when I was when I was saying to their benefit, I meant their immediate benefit. I think today you got lobbyists getting money hand and foot from these guys to push this kind of stuff, which they are. But ultimately, it is absolutely ridiculous. But I actually do want to touch on Pratik's argument a little bit. So I agree with you on the EV side, but I want to play a little bit of devil's advocate in terms of like mandating a restriction that you can sell fossil fuel cars in the future. So my argument would be it's easier to either extend the timeline of the mandate um, or change your policy than it would be to expedite the sale of electric vehicles otherwise because right now i feel like certain places like california are incentivizing car makers to really push for that technology to be dominant in that space and maybe partially they're only doing it because they know it's going to be mandated in the future and in tw if in 2030 they go we're not going to hit this by 2035 it's unreasonable they could change it but you can't change the speed at with which we develop these technologies so what would you say to that Pratik? i think it's a different culture Places like California are much more different than places like Wyoming. They have electric car charging stations. They have a lot of people, ubiquitous. though. That is a lot true. Of people. That's they important. got a lot of people. It's a lot more ubiquitous. You have more Tesla car charging stations available. But again, I keep saying Tesla because that's the only electric vehicle that makes sense for most people to buy. And the only people that are going to really be able to buy Tesla vehicles are people that are above the right middle now. class. Right now. Who knows about 2035? 2035 is so out of the way that we have no idea what's going to happen. Our world might end in the next five years. Who knows? So I think that's important just because we don't know. And I would rather you have options and alternatives then you just eliminate one side. The issue with the Democratic side in general, and I always bring this up, is they're very authoritarian on things that they care about. They don't have any like middle ground. They just want to ban everything. Oh, you don't like gas power? Gas is killing the environment? We need to ban it. We don't need anybody to be driving it because it's bad. Not thinking of the fact that who is buying the gas-powered cars? The people that are wealthy may be able to buy Teslas. But the people that are poor in the middle class, they're not have enough money to go buy a Tesla. And why the hell would you buy like a one of those other electric vehicles like Nissan Leafs? They're so ugly looking. They look stupid. And the fact is that they don't work half the places. And if I'm going to travel to another place in another city, to another state, 
I don't know when my car is going to run out of battery. It's a whole worrying process. Hence, Tesla's work and other EV vehicles don't yet. I just think that, you know, we're in that situation where places like California, you could do something. But in the end of the day, when you're authoritarian like that and you just shut down other people just because you like one way and if you don't agree with that way, you're stupid. It's just dumb. We're not in office. Like, it's not like the Republican and Democratic Party. These are regular people. Regular people should have the most options available to them so then they can figure out what they want to do because this is their whole life. When you buy a car, you're not buying a car for a year. You're buying a car for 10 to 12 years, maybe more, depending on how long it lasts. It's a long-term investment. When you make a long-term investment, why are you going to limit them to a few options? That's like what they did when it deals with like energy policy and utilities. That's the whole issue that Democrats are so mad and angry about when it deals with monopolies. That's what you're doing with when you're eliminating fossil fuels and fossil fueled cars. Wyoming is doing the same thing with electric. I don't agree with it on principle, but it really doesn't matter because how many of the people in Wyoming are driving electric vehicles? Not many, so it's not a big issue. Sure, what Nick said makes 100% sense. If all your minerals for your electric batteries and stuff is coming from Wyoming, you're pretty stupid to ban all that stuff from Wyoming. But in the end of the day, it's just the argument that you want options. Why are you limiting people's options? Why are you being authoritarian in those states? But in the end of the day, you just need to have more options available for people. And if that means that you don't phase out any cars, that's good. Screw the environment. If people can't make it for the next five, 10 years and being able to afford a car, that should be much more important because who knows when the world will end. The world might end in five years. But in the end of the day, if people don't can't afford to buy cars because you're eliminating electric vehicles or you're eliminating gas-powered cars, you're eliminating the option for people to choose what they want to buy, that option is much more valuable to me than any political value or view that you can have about anything. Because if I have options, everyone has options. And then we can decide what we want to do, not what we have to do. <coughs> Just my thoughts. So I agree with the charging network stuff that is proposed in this bill. And like you guys talked about, the affordability stuff, I think, ends up falling flat. I really do. And here's why. You look at the most popular cars that are sold in the United States. What do consumers want? The most popular selling car series is the Ford F-150 series. Okay, if you look at the Ford F-150 electric, which they are also marketing heavily, I understand the sales as an overall percentage are not the highest. However, if you're just looking at price, the electric version of the Ford F-150, the base models, is cheaper than the regular Ford F-150. And the thing is the new tax credit, the 7,500 one, that's applied point of sale. So you don't have to do like some rebate. You don't have to you know, find some tax attorney to go through stuff. It's while you're purchasing the car. And it also works for cars that are used. So uh, the Ford F-150 electric is not only cheaper point of sale, it's also cheaper to get the fuel if you do the calculations in terms of charging. And it's also cheaper in terms of maintenance. So I understand that that's just one brand. However, I just wanted to say, like, in terms of the most popular vehicle that Americans really want, if you're comparing the gasoline versus the electric, the electric one is cheaper and is more affordable for most Americans. That's still, but you're limiting the options of people. It's not like everybody wants to buy a Ford one, F-150. Some people I'm do. not saying they need to pretend. I, what, what, what I'm saying I'm, is I'm that- I'm just saying that they're more I'm, affordable I'm than just, you would think. That's I'm all. I'm just arguing that you should have the option available to people. 
I'm not arguing that electric vehicles are better than gas-powered cars or gas-powered cars are better than electric vehicles. I'm arguing that there are more gas-powered cars. Many people have them already, but in the end of the day, you want people to have that option. Not everybody wants to buy a Ford F-150. Not everybody wants to buy a Tesla. People may want to buy a BMW. People may want to buy a Volkswagen. I don't like Volkswagens. They're ugly looking to me, but some people really like their new Beetles. My point is, is that everyone wants that option. That's the economy. That's the American dream. What what would be the future if people didn't have options? I want options for what luxury buy, luxury vehicle I buy because in the end of the day, I'm going to have it for the next 10, 15 years. It's not like I'm going to buy a whole like fleet of cars. I'm going to buy one car. My point is that that's, that's the thing. I just think you need you options. You want options. Yeah. Exactly. You don't want them to legislate stuff. You don't want bans. You want options. Exactly. And I think that dovetails nicely into the gun control stuff. But Tyler, what are your kind of closing oh, I, thoughts? As we I was going to say it goes nicely into the Missouri lawmaker um, situation because we're talking about options here and how they're trying to limit the options. Missouri lawmakers adopt stricter dress code for women in state house. So lawmakers in the Missouri House of Representatives this week adopted a stricter dress code for women as part of a new rules package and now requires them to cover their shoulders by wearing a jacket like a blazer, cardigan, or knit blazer. Now, this was proposed by a female member of Missouri Congress, GOP State Rep Ann Kelly, who wanted to advocate for equality in dress wear among the senators and among the sexes. She said, men in the Missouri House of Representatives are required to wear a jacket, shirt, and tie. The previous dress code for women required dresses or skirts or slacks worn with a blazer or sweater and, appro or, and appropriate dress shoes or boots. Kelly, speaking on the House floor, said she felt compelled to offer the change that cleans up some of the language by mirroring the language to the gentleman's dress code. Men are required to wear a jacket, a shirt, and a tie, correct? And if they walked in here without a tie, they would get gaveled down in a heartbeat. If they walked in without a jacket, they would get gaveled down in a heartbeat. So, we are so interested in being equal, Kelly said on Wednesday during the floor debate. This sparked outrage for many Democrats who said the change was sexist because the dress code for men was not altered and arguing that it's sexist for a full body of representatives consisting of three-fourths men voting for what women can and cannot wear. So, what are your thoughts on this? Obviously, when you look at the news media, this is what I was telling them before. Like, whenever I read this headline, I was like, wow, women are like being told what to wear and what not to wear by a bunch of men sitting in the Missouri House. But if you read the story, the person proposing it is a woman who wants to advocate for equality among what men and women wear because she feels that whether you're a male politician or a female politician, you should have the same uniform. Because in nowadays, in the modern day, men and women are equal, so, so, hence they should be wearing the same stuff. So it's a good question. What are your thoughts on this topic? It's amazing how much of a waste of time most of the stuff our representatives are doing because i mean this is some of this like we talk about the seceding stuff i think this is stupider much stupider than that i mean like we don't even have to get into a gender debate here whether you think there's men and women it doesn't even matter do you think that they should be forcing people to wear either i guess like even if you're a guy why couldn't you wear a dress right like pratik had said that before the show it's like you can dress how you want to dress we shouldn't have some sort of communist system where we all need to match and wear the same thing and we all stand up at the same time like we're in church and sing songs. Like, that's just, we're not kumbaya kumbaya here. 
We're just trying to get their traditions, their precedents, and people have to behave a certain way. Tyler, is that not the whole thing? It's like if you're gonna go see the president, are you not gonna dress up? You're not gonna show up in shorts, okay? You gotta, you gotta have some rules. Uh, look, look, I, the, it's just silly to me. I mean, we have some standards. If we're gonna legislate standards for how you should look, it should lean in the conservative direction, I suppose, and not everyone wear the same thing. But to me, this is just ridiculous. It, it's not even something that should be discussed. It's a waste of everyone's time. This should be a gaffe, quite frankly. You know, if anything, I thought the Republicans would be in favor of this. You know, uh, Second Amendment, right to bear arms. You know, if they, they want to prevent the bare arms of women being on display in the House, I don't know. That seems a little bit too authoritarian for me. No, it just means you can wear bare arms. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Um, No, but yeah, to your point, um, like Pratik said initially, you know, the your immediate reaction is like, okay, who who proposed this bill? Why on earth would they want this? And then it cuts to a woman who's a Republican member of the body who says, look, I I would like people to dress a certain way. And I think the story, however, then ignores who would actually end up voting for it. You know, it's not like it would be like 80% women voting to say, yes, we, we want a dress code. You know, most of the clips of the confrontations on this, it was between the woman who originated the bill and then other women who were on the other political side on the Democrat side saying like, why should I have to change what I'm wearing to show up to work? Like I'm dressed pretty for, they, they argued that they were dressed pretty professionally in that moment. Like why, you know, is someone going to be you know, going up to them and checking, like, how much ankle is exposed. Like, give me a break. I don't know. Like, you don't need to define professional dress down to, like, the millimeter that, you know, your sock needs to appear on your person. But I don't know. To your point, like, should should everyone just wear suits? I don't know. Probably not. But, yeah, ultimately, I guess I am with Tyler in that, like, <laughs> who really cares? I think there needs to be some sort of baseline. What, but what yeah, equality are they searching for? What do they gain from this? But Nick, the irony I think is that women are the only people that care. That's maybe my my. I don't think so though. I don't think maybe so. maybe men do care. I don't know. It's not even that women care. It's just the fact that someone's trying to mandate that everyone looks the exact same. Like to me, that's just so. No, silly. no. But what it's... I'm saying is that only the women would care about what they're doing inside the Missouri House in terms of what they're wearing. None. Of, I bet you that the guys themselves are just voting party line on whatever the, the party stance is. But the storyline became shifted because it went from being that conversation that the women would have with other women on what they should wear to being, oh, men decided what women should wear. But the fact, the whole argument about it is that she felt differently than other people did. Hence, there was this big legislation that happened and her side had more votes. Hence, it won. I just think that, I mean, I'm not a woman. I don't know how women feel. Maybe that, and all women have different elements of feminism. Like she's arguing that men and women should be treated the same way, should have the same dress code and shouldn't be differentiated against because they all have the same power whenever you elect them. It's not like you're voting for different genders. You're voting for a politician and the politician happens to be of one gender or the other gender. I just think that it's one of those that we really can't judge because we really don't know. We're just men, I guess. No, no, no. I I judge. How much money was wasted in terms of time and salary paid for these people to talk about this bullshit? It's so stupid. But I will say, like, the reason why it's being framed as men deciding what women wear 
is because women make up less than a third of that legislative body in the state. And so the majority of people voting on what women should wear are going to be men. So that's why it's framed that way. What in, I'm in saying all fairness, is it's not their fault, though. It's not like they, the men that are voting are like, man, why am I voting on this? It's because that's how the legislature is made up. If there were more women inside their legislature, then it would be a different storyline. I just think that it's one of those issues that becomes an issue because this tabloidy in the news wants to talk about something. More so than, you know, like if, if, if the demographics were different in the House, the voting numbers may be different. The voting numbers may even be the same. We don't know. I just think that Missouri's people are different. And Missouri's House wanted to do something and their demographics are made up of a different way. You know, it's so ironic, their critique. It's like when COVID was happening, I guarantee this same state with a Republican majority was like, no, you don't have to wear a mask in here. Absolutely not. Why should I have to put on anything extra? It's like those same people are now saying, yeah, you need to <laughs> dress a certain way and do a certain thing. I don't know. I just think that's a little hypocritical. Let's all remember, we're talking about Missouri here. I think they, they're maybe the the worst economy out of all the states. I'm pretty sure they have some of the lowest education rates. Like, we're not dealing with the cream of the okay, crop okay. here, people. All right, so all they right, waste right, their time dealing with this stupid shit. But anyways, look, it's just kind of a silly story. Um, I don't think... Do you guys know how the voting is going? Like, where where that's voted? I have, I didn't... Yeah, it, I think it already passed. And it was yeah, split along passed. party lines and Republicans package. won. Good. Yeah. I can't wait to see that sea of suits. But hey, guys, let's move to the story we actually skipped. A bit of a sadder story. Um, uh, so, so we're going to be talking about, about a Virginia teacher that was actually shot during a class lesson. So I'll, I'll take this one. So we have a teacher, a 25-year-old Abby's Lerner, was critically injured when she was shot by a 6-year-old student in Newport News. The boy shot and wounded the teacher with a handgun in a first-grade classroom on Friday at Richneck Elementary School, according to authorities. Zwerner put up her hand in a defensive position when the gun was fired, and the bullet went through her hand and into her upper chest. Newport News Mayor Philip Jones said the condition of the teacher, a woman in her 30s, is trending in a positive direction, which is good, as she remains hospitalized. Police Chief Steve Drew met with her teacher and her family Saturday morning. She has improved and is currently listed in a stable condition, the police said in a recent news release. Drew said the shooting was not accidental and was part of an acceleration. No students were injured. Altercation. Uh, no students were injured. He also revealed that the handgun used by the boy was legally purchased by his mother and was in the family's home. He said the boy brought it uh, to the school in his backpack the day of the shooting. The boy had been held at a medical facility since an emergency custody order and temporary detention order were issued Friday. And it's unclear whether the boy's mother will face any charges. The story has led Virginians to be in a stalemate on both sides of the gun debate, with many rallying at the Virginia State Capitol on Martin Luther King Day. Despite calls for action, reforms appear destined for gridlock in the 2023 session due to a politically divided government. That's not stopping lawmakers from playing offensive in an election year that will see every seat in the General Assembly on the ballot. There were road closures and a heightened police presence throughout the downtown Richmond in preparation for a series of planned demonstrations, which were all peaceful. The Capitol estimated roughly 150 to 200 people turned out for the rally, spearheaded by the Virginia Citizens Defense League, a fraction of the more than 20,000 protesters that showed up in 2020 when Democratic leadership passed a slew of new gun reforms. 
The gun advocates want to remove permitting requirements to concealed carry in Virginia, following suit with other states that already allow constitutional carry. Um, they're also backing bills to repeal Virginia's red flag law and roll back local authority to declare gun-free zones in certain places. On the flip side, we have House Democrats who are hoping to take back a majority in the fall unveiled their gun violence prevention agenda on Monday morning. Dan Helmer has a bill that would ban the possession of a high-capacity magazines with 15 rounds or more and the new sale of assault weapons, which he said would impact AR-15s and some semi-automatic firearms. Another bill seeks to increase the minimum age for purchasing these guns. So we've discussed gun reform, um, shootings that have happened over the past several years, and all that. But of course, anytime a big news event occurs like this, it's on national news and we're bringing it back up again. So what are your thoughts on the situation overall, guys? So Delegate Dan Helmer's um, perspective, the Fairfax representative, about banning AR-15s is part of the same slew of what you'd hear whenever any kind of shootings happen. Democrats generally within their states start advocating for the same stuff that we should just ban firearms. Some argue that we should ban firearms entirely. Others argue that you should ban certain guns and some argue that you should ban magazine sizes or li lim limit the amount of magazine sizes available for each gun. That's usually the context. On the other side, you have the people that are like, you shouldn't do anything because you're going to cause more of a problem. It goes against my second right, Second Amendment rights. The challenge is you also have the black markets in some of these places that have banned guns, which lead to more gun crimes in certain places where they are more heavily regulated. While the problem is that there's no solution because it's all based on, it's a state-by-state -state issue. And in this situation, generally speaking, you will have legally purchased, you'll have illegally purchased firearms that lead to crimes. That's a majority of the crimes that do occur. This one was a more special situation because this was a child that um, acquired the gun from, you know, from their home. And it was just a mother being irresponsible, which led the child to get the gun and put it in his backpack. So it's a different situation more so than a gun, like, you know, rights question mark but anytime anybody gets shot it automatically becomes you know one republican side versus another democratic side arguing about what we should do to ban or you know not ban guns per se yeah and i think i mean thankfully the teacher lived that's number one but like does this change the question becomes does this change anything in terms of gun policy at a level in virginia or at the national level in virginia no I mean, they just elected a Republican governor. There was this big wave to change things up. And so I, I don't think anything's switching there. And then nationally, I don't think this changes anything either. Uh, the article says, like you were saying, Pratik, the firearm was legally purchased by his mother. And so this isn't a case of, you know, everything was done correctly here. Again, it was an irresponsible parent. I don't know how this even happened in the first place. Um, you know, it's a very sad situation, but I don't think that this is like the standout case that's going to change anything about gun control uh, or gun regulations in this country, especially after, you know, the, the recent bill that was passed last session that was a slight concession from Republicans, but it, it didn't really go very far. So now that they have the majority, I don't think anything's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think anything's going to happen either. Um, we come back to the same place over and over and over again, but... Yeah, this isn't going to move the needle for sure. So it's very unfortunate. But at the end of the day, if we're going to allow guns in this country, which we are, and it just seems like that's not going to change, some people are just going to, like, it, things are going to happen. For instance, we were legalizing marijuana, and you see more infants getting into marijuana edibles that they shouldn't have got into. 
Um, it's just like an externality of allowing that thing <coughs> thing to happen. And that's look that look. I mean, are you do you guys disagree? If you live in a country with hundreds of millions of guns and they're out there, things are gonna happen. Like, really, there's no way around that. I mean, one thing you'll hear from uh, people like a generation or two older than us is that, you know, we've we've always had a lot of guns in this country, and these types of things didn't happen when they were growing up. Maybe they did, and they just weren't. But look at like New York. I mean, they definitely did. So, yeah, but that was the crime wave in the 90s. Like, this, the, the whole like children coming into schools and shooting people, that's more of a recent phenomenon it's our parents that led to it before that it i understand the schools but, but what about just like overall gun deaths have they not been trending down no so oh in terms of overall gun deaths you you definitely have stuff where like for yeah. example in the 90s for like the murder rates in some cities like new york was very high compared to what it is today um but in terms of again this the conversation on the guns here it's, it's more in terms of children in yeah. schools and i think that is what has changed and so something what, what that we're still changed, grappling with where it's like do we need to change anything for other people if it's i mean look because what led you know, to this postulate. that we didn't you have could. in the past i guess i mean we could talk about the internet and stuff but if you're if you're telling me we didn't have an issue we have an issue and we're just trying to figure out a solution here we i mean i where, where did the issue come from i guess we say it's mental health does that just mean the internet caused it? What is mental health? What are we I, talking about here? I think there's many aspects to it. First is that in bigger cities, there there tends to be more regulations around guns, as there are with many drugs. And the places like New York, they do have higher crime rates because there is a ban on guns. So they a lot of the guns that are acquired are acquired illegally. Hence, there's less registration around them. And the people that tend to acquire these guns illegally tend to be mobs and gangs and, you know, certain types of, you know, crooked criminal type, you know, groups that are acquiring these guns. And then the problem is that certain people get hands on these guns that shouldn't have their hands on their guns. And the issue with all that stuff is when it's illegal, you have less registration paperwork. There's less, you know, stuff dealing with how they acquire these guns. Hence, more crime happens. The other theory is video games. So a lot of people argue that because there's certain video games that we play that are much more modernized, that are, you know, much more high tech, things like they date back to Call of Duty primarily, where, you know, in Call of Duty, you're in the military, you're shooting people, you know, you have those video games in perspective, in particular, or Grand Theft Auto, some of those two, those two games, I think in particular, are what cited in some of these studies and research that said that there is some inclination to how people have perceived guns and how people like, you know, go about using weapons has changed as opposed to the past where guns were primarily used for hunting and that's not the case have you ever seen a movie in the 70s no 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 that's fair too the godfather that's part of it too that's part of it too the other thing is with robberies and gun shootings and movies that deal with those things those are all picturized things that have led people to look at guns in a different way than they used to prior to our for our previous generation so before the 80s, they didn't have as many like types of shootings like that. There was Wild West shootings and Wild West movies, and there were like some bank robbery movies, but it wasn't to the same extent as you playing a video game and you firing a gun. So it's like some of that stuff they lead to. It's a bunch of studies. So it's a bunch of mixed information. But what I'm telling you is that there's not one reason for why something exists. There's multiple reasons to why they believe something exists. And some of that stuff is even to do with things being 
more illegal and people wanting to acquire things that are illegal. That's a human nature thing. That's another thing. Yeah, but I, I've seen plenty of studies that say the opposite, where video games don't have that effect. And you think about the hundreds of millions, if not billions of people who play those games and the percentage of people that Again. you would say would be convinced... Uh, I know. I know you're saying it's only a part of it, and I, yeah. I agree. We don't really know what the answer is here. You don't need. You don't need a hundred people doing something. You can have millions of people playing a video game. If twenty of those people end up becoming criminals and shooting somebody, then it's automatically a gun policy debate. That's all it takes. It doesn't even take a big percentage. It only takes like less than half a percent. One percent of people in the world are psychopathic. That's cross cultural. That's yeah. every single culture you're part of. One out of a hundred people are psychopathic. Again, I mean, I'm not are, advocating some are very for or against cool. video games. I just I'm don't know how he legislate against games. it. I'm just saying that that's that's what they say is a big cause. They have a lot of different causes, but the way that guns were perceived before a parent's generation is different from the way guns are perceived now. And what it tends to happen is that there is much more crime rates in big cities where there is more shootings, and it was much worse during the 90s and early, late 80s than it is now. Like there are things that are getting better for like, you know, that context It's just certain places where there is more restrictions tends to have more gun crimes compared to places like South Carolina. Actually, South Carolina is very lax gun policies. They don't have as much gun crimes, but it's all based on city by city, state by state issues. And the places that tend to have more gun crimes tend to have more regulations around them, too, which might be a self propagating cycle. But we don't know. And, uh, it's yeah. one of those things. And it might even I, be I worse if those is. regulations didn't exist. We really don't know. Yeah, it's what, but it's one of the things I've been saying for a long time. If you, there are certain things that need to be federally mandated. If you're trying to restrict guns that bad, if it's not done on a federal level and you don't but have that's the issue, uh, though. barriers to interstate travel, you're just shooting yourself in the foot because you're not doing no, it. But see, Tyler, I'd say that's stupid. Literally. But, Tyler, turn no, no, a phrase. Tyler, <laughs> I, what I'd say is that's dumb because in places like Alaska – where you're protecting yourself or places like the woods in many of these places because many of these states have a lot of rural areas we're talking about wyoming recently wyoming oregon eastern oregon is a pretty rural area all those there are a places, lot of shootings in eastern oregon no, and alaska there's a lot like, of no 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 there's a lot of hunting that takes place that's oh, it's the gonna main be greater reason. ohio yeah there's oh, a, I, I don't know. No, 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 <laughs> that's where the real saying. hunting is. listen listen to what i'm saying there's a lot of hunting that takes place <laughs> oh but there's also more need of a protection whenever you're in rural areas because there's less law enforcement there and then you have places like alaska where you have bear attacks you have things like that that do happen which is why you need a gun all i'm saying but i'm is not arguing no, no i'm not no, even arguing it. that i get it yeah. what i'm saying is there's a reason why there's not be... a federal mandate you can make state by state laws based on states certain states and particularly i wouldn't even say states cities should be regulating this because a city like new york city is very different from a city like advanced north carolina like you would have to figure out where advanced north carolina is that's where i'm from but as opposed to a city like new york city which is really big the thing is that the people, the stuff that's going on in those places is different. And those bigger cities may need more regulations around guns than smaller cities. But there's no reason to just create legislation to create legislation. You should only create legislation when it's absolutely necessary. Hence, we don't create that much legislation. I, I guess part of the problem for me is this topic comes up often, but we always have the same things to say. You know, I just wish we could add something or there's some movement or some legislation that was kind of interesting that maybe had some interesting proposal. But there's literally nothing that we can speak to that's showing any signs of improving this. 
So, so it's a tri- tricky subject. What do you do? I mean, in this case, for example, like no one in their right mind would ever think if they were selling a gun to the mother, oh yeah, this is gonna hand up end up in the hands of a six year old. Like that would just never even enter someone's mind. So I don't know. It's like how do you really legislate around something that y- you can't even really like consider and is so low percentage that again i think just part of this is like if this was something like sandy hook or uvalde or something like that then i could see something shifting but because this was just one incident and the person lived i don't think it's going to change fundamentally change uh the national debate on it i I guess i just worry that before we transition really quick but i just worry that um, what's going to happen is as a solution, it's just going to be enhanced security, like invasive security. Like I can see oh, everything like that's on you. People. Yeah, dude. Not even that. Just the technology, the cameras, guns, the, yeah. the, just the access they'll be given to people. The it's like in the name of, they say in the name of security and protection, you'll give away all your rights and freedoms. And I hope that doesn't happen in the schools. But if this yeah. keeps on trending that way, I can't see any, any other way. This you shouldn't have to have metal detectors for six year olds. Speaking of national debates, let's talk about Joe Biden. So Joe Biden's fight to cure cancer continues after she lives through skin cancer herself. So Joe Biden's advocacy for curing cancer didn't start with her son's death in 2015 from brain cancer. It began decades earlier, long before she came into the national spotlight and could now be further energized by her own brush with a common form of skin cancer. The first lady often says the worst three words anyone will ever hear are, you have cancer. She heard a version of that phrase herself this past week. Last year, during a routine screen, Joe Biden's doctors found basal cell carcinoma on the top of her right eye, a highly treatable form of skin cancer. While Joe Biden was being prepped to remove the cancer cell, doctors found and removed another one from the left side of her chest, also confirmed to be basal cell carcinoma. A third lesion from her left eyelid was being examined. While it's too early to know when and how Biden might address her situation publicly, her experience could inject new purpose into what has become part of her life's work, highlighting research into curing cancer and urging people to get regular screenings. So, Nick and Tyler, what are your thoughts on the fight to cure cancer? I don't know. I I hope we do it. I know that's something that Biden said in his State of the Union address last year, where he was talking about having the equivalent of DARPA, uh, which sort of accelerates technologies for the military, but having sort of a health component and similar process for, you know, cutting edge research into cancer and curing other other things. So look, props to Jill. I think everyone should get checked by a dermatologist, um, especially you have it in your family. Um, you know, it's something I need to be doing more often, but um yeah i don't know i just really hope she's successful in it i think we've seen a lot of first ladies take on um you know these big campaigns and this one seems equally as important and i hope it's successful and that's it we got episode 113 of politicana thank you for tuning in we will catch you next week later take care